Uh, yeah, hello everyone. My name is Scott Jennings, like you said. I am uh, really thankful to be here. Uh, really thankful for the opportunity to preach. Really humbled that you would let me do this in the church. Um, I attend West Hill San Jose. I think maybe maybe one of the pastors from the church has, has been here before. Um, I'm, I'm one of the congregational members there, and I was able to have an opportunity to preach at our church in January, uh, something we do semi-regularly, letting lay people have an opportunity. Uh, and this is a sermon I preached just, just a month ago in our church uh, as we are going through 2 Timothy. Um, I have a lovely wife, Jessica, and two kids, Ian and Peter. Unfortunately, they couldn't join us today. Uh, wish you could have met them, but they're back up in San Jose. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then we will jump into the sermon. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word is truth, and I pray that um, you give us grace today as we explore this truth, and Holy Spirit, you'll teach us what you would have us to hear, and we know that your word does not return to you in vain. It will accomplish what you have set forth to accomplish, and I pray that you would cause us to have a bigger view of you today, and that we will be challenged and encouraged by the truth in your word. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I want to give a little introduction talking about uh, someone I met in college, and we're going to call this person Frank. His name was not really Frank. Um, but I attended a Christian university, um, and I lived on campus, and so there were thousands of, of young people living on this Christian campus. And so there were a lot of, um, there were a lot of rules, and um, everyone had many different opinions about what they thought of these rules, whether they're good or bad or they should be changed or whatnot. And uh, my junior year, when I was living in the dormitory, Frank lived on my hall. And it seemed like clockwork every night, 10.30 or 11, Frank would emerge from his room and he would look for someone to debate with about, largely about the rules about the university. And um, it, it was like Frank was probably wrestling with something deeper in Christianity than just, than just these things. And he would say things like, well, what do, you, what do you think the Bible really says about alcohol? And what do you think about the university standards on dress attire? Um, and so he would kind of, he would go on these like tangents about this. And he usually didn't ask a whole lot of questions about what you thought about these things. Mostly he just wanted you to know what he thought about these things. And so... Some people really didn't have any tolerance for Frank, and they were, they were kind of harsh and curt with him, and they would just, they would just shut it down and walk away. Um, and then there were some other people who were, who were more generous with him, and this was usually my approach, and I would just let Frank talk about whatever he wanted to talk about. And we would just, we would sit there and we would talk, and I would listen. Um, and I'm still friends with Frank on Facebook, but... In recent years, he has admitted that he has uh, renounced his Christian faith, um, that he either doesn't or never, never believed it. He's not a follower of Jesus, and he's really critical of Christianity in general. And when I think back to my time having this opportunity to talk to Frank, I'm, I'm really rebuked by the Holy Spirit because I just sat there and I let Frank talk about these, these things that were clearly just tangents and not important, and I never asked him, how is your soul? What does the gospel mean to you? What have you read in the Bible? What, you know, when did you come to, to Jesus? Really important questions about his faith that had more substance and meaning 
But instead, I took an easier way out and just listened to whatever he had to say. And I think that was a waste of time, honestly. Um, and while it was probably good that some of us wanted to be Frank's friend and engage with him, in a way, it kind of lost its meaning because we never really did what I think the Holy Spirit was probably leading me to do and actually really care for Frank's soul and ask him about what his faith is really like. Um, and that brings me to my main point for the sermon today, that God wants us to join his glorious redemptive plan by bringing the truth to bear on what is most important. That we should join God's glorious redemptive plan by bringing the truth to bear on what is most important. Um, so thank you, Michael, for reading through 2 Timothy 20 through 20, uh, chapter 2, verses 20 through 26. That's what I'm going to preach on. Um, but to give a little background, I'm going I'm to kind of summarize verses 14 through 19. When I was preaching at West Hills, we had the advantage of we were going through the book as a, as a series. So the congregation heard this the week before. So just to give a little bit of context and, and set the stage, the book of 2 Timothy is written by the Apostle Paul, and he's writing it to his protege, someone he's been mentoring in the faith, Timothy, a young pastor and leader in the Christian church. And this is really an important opportunity for Paul because he's getting older, he's in prison at this point, persecution is increasing amongst the church. There's a very good chance these are some of the last things Paul is going to be able to say to Timothy. And this is kind of a changing of the mantle of leadership, that Timothy is going to be embracing, taking up this leadership, and some of the older saints in the faith, like Paul, are going to be stepping away from that. So Paul is really trying to get Timothy ready for this. And I'm going to read verses 14 through 19 briefly and then kind of summarize it to set the stage for, for what's in 20 through 26. Um, so yeah, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 through 19. Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. But avoid worldly, chatter, worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenius and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they have upset the faith of some. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows who are his, and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. Um, so just briefly here, Paul is charging Timothy, don't fool around with these irrelevant discussions. Instead, you need to focus on accurately handling the word of truth, God's word. And this empty chatter is leading to further ungodliness and it is spreading, like from these two people who are spreading the false teaching that the resurrection had already happened, it's upsetting some people's faith. But Paul closes the section with the encouragement that nevertheless, God's foundation stands and God knows who are his and those who name God's name are to abstain from wickedness, probably referencing these false teachings. Um, so that sets us up for verses 20 through 26. And so I'm gonna have about three sections today. In the first section, verse 20 and 21, we're going to ask the question, you know, honorable and dishonorable vessels, which ones will we be? Verses 22 and 23, Paul is going to challenge us, who will we engage with and what will we engage in? And then closing in verses 24 through 26, how should the Lord's servant respond to his opponents? 
So verses 20 and 21, I'll reread them. Now in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. So Paul starts this off saying that there's different kinds of vessels in this house. Some are gold and silver, some are clay and wood. And when he says honorable and dishonorable, what he's probably meaning is not that one use is necessarily disgusting or, or unworthy, but it's probably just one that is more noble and set apart and one that is more everyday, kind of like a distinction between fine china that you get out at Easter when the family comes versus a plate you throw a Pop-Tart on for breakfast. That's more the distinction Paul's drawing here. Um, and so how do we fit into this metaphor, right? Well, based on the context, it appears that the honorable uses are belonging to the Christians who are cleansing themselves from the false teaching that Paul's referenced in the prior verses, cleansing themselves from the false teaching and the needless controversies. So the dishonorable uses are more for those who are actually engaged in the false teachings and spreading this kind of theology that is incorrect. Um, so it's important whenever you interact with a metaphor not to take it too far because that was breakdown. And when, when I was younger, I didn't understand this metaphor very well until, until actually very recently. When I was reading about the honorable and dishonorable uses in, in, in this house, the way I thought of it was that um, all of us are vessels for God and some of us are going to have some flashy, glamorous, honorable use, and we should all want to be those, those kind of Christians who get to get up on the stage and play music, and we write books, and there's these missionaries that look like all-stars, and then the dishonorable uses are the people who someone needs to mow the grass and show up early to restock the toilet paper in the bathroom, and that's, that's the dishonorable uses, and you should want to do more than that. That's what I was reading into this, and I don't know, maybe, maybe others might come to that conclusion, but I really don't think that's what Paul is saying here at all. And I think instead, Paul is trying to get us to have a real excitement in our soul to engage in the Lord's work and get us to understand that when God uses us, he's looking at all of us like fine china in his glorious redemptive plan. And that when people step away from false teaching and really want to be used by God, we are already like fine china, no matter what we're doing for the church. So, it says, if we cleanse ourselves, we will be vessels for honor, imply, uh, that Paul's implying we should aspire to be. So, how can we be sure, like I referenced earlier, what, what Paul means when he says, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, that's what, that's what he says in verse 21. He doesn't say false teaching, but he says these things. Well, I think it's the false teaching because if you look in the prior verses in 14 through 19, he's already referencing these people who are spreading the false teaching and engaging in the needless controversies. And then if you look ahead later, down in verse 23, he's referencing the same stuff. So it, it, if you look at it, it really reads like this whole passage, verses 14 through 26, is all talking about one topic. So even though he doesn't say it explicitly in verse 21, when Paul says these things, it is implied he's saying you need to cleanse yourself from these false teachings. So how can we be cleansed from the false teachings? What does that mean, to be cleansed from these things? I think it really just means separating from false teaching. I think it's kind of straightforward. I think this is an issue where Paul is imploring people to separate 
from sin. Um, this doesn't necessarily mean separating from false teachers. We, we'll explore in later verses a response to these people. It might mean that. But I think the more immediate thing is that Paul is imploring these, peop- these people, when you hear people engage in the needless tangents and the controversies and the things that kind of go into false teaching, you really need to separate yourself from that. You need to stand up against that. That's not something that we can tolerate. We really have to just step away from it. Uh, and if we do this then we will be these vessels for honorable use, which Paul describes. And he describes it with, um, with several different um, adjectives here. First, he says that we will be sanctified or holy. Um, and this is a word that, that has a lot to it. So um, when you look at the word sanctify or to be made holy, this is something that God does to us. We cannot sanctify ourselves. We cannot make ourselves holy. This is definitely an action that God performs on believers to to set us apart. But at the same time, we still have a role to play here because you see Paul says, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified. So clearly there's some level of conditionalness where God is asking us to cleanse ourselves from the false teaching and as a result, he will make us sanctified. He will make us holy. I think this is also a relationship that is supported throughout Scripture. When you look at God and how he's interacted with his people in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, he wants to have his people be set apart and be holy, and he expressed those laws in the Old Testament, and there's many commands in the New Testament as well. And it's ultimately an action that God performs, but it's something that we have a role in, in our own sanctification as we pursue God, to separate ourselves from sinful things and obey him. Um, and Paul says also, we will be useful for the master. The word master here, meaning someone who has complete authority over another. I think that accurately describes our relationship with God, that as believers, we belong to God now. He has purchased us with his work on the cross, and God is our master. And this is someone we can submit to with joy. And lastly, Paul says, we will be ready or prepared for every good work. Um, and just a note here about, about that. One of the commentaries I was reading wanted to summarize it this way, saying that the good, good works do not make us acceptable to God, but once we meet God in Christ, they are the expected result. Um, it's definitely something I wrestle with, where oftentimes I feel like I need to do good works in order to be approved or acceptable to God, but the relationship is backwards, and that actually... Good works are not an input that improve my relationship with God, but that as we draw closer to God, good works are the output of God's work in us. I think that's what Paul is trying to reflect here in verse 21, that as people cleanse themselves from false teaching and draw closer to God, God is preparing them to do good works in them. So to summarize here in this first section, we need to abstain from false teaching so we can be sanctified and useful to God for every good work. If we entertain false teaching or doctrines that threaten the gospel, we won't be set apart for the master's good works. The presence of false teaching ultimately undermines God's authority and supremacy in the world, but there can only be one king. That's one of the reasons why this is such a big deal, why God wants to highlight this, why Paul wanted to urge Timothy with this, that false teaching cannot be tolerated, not because Paul is some academic who just wants to make sure we cross every T and dot every I, But ultimately, when we allow false teaching to spread, we're allowing lies about God to spread. We're allowing 
the king's authority to be undermined. And that's why there can be no tolerance for this. So then, moving into verses 22 and 23, we have point number two. Paul's asking the question, who will we engage with and what should we engage in? So let's, let's read verse 22 and 23 again. Now flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. But refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. So verse 22 starts off saying we need to flee these youthful passions. What, what is that referring to? Well, it's probably referring to the same thing we've been talking about. It's probably somehow tied to this false teaching and just irrelevant discussions that Paul's been talking about throughout this passage. He's going to bring it up in the next verse, too, in verse 23. So it's probably referring to that. But what, would, what, did, what is this thing that Timothy needs to guard against, this youthful passion or impulse? Probably, since Timothy is a younger pastor, Paul is exhorting him, knowing that he's younger, and how he should be responding to these people, to these false teachings, to when people want to come up to him and talk about these things that are just irrelevant and aren't going to go anywhere. And some commentary suggested that Paul is really guarding against Timothy, responding with impatience, intolerance, love of argument, self-assertion, being partial. And since Timothy was a younger pastor, it was probably fair for Paul to remind him to run from these things. And it's probably a good reminder for all of us, no matter whether we're young or old, that we need to not just give in to quick impulses when we're faced with these serious situations. But then instead, after that, verse 22 calls us to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, and specifically to do so with those who call on the name of the Lord out of a pure heart. So God, as a contrast to that, wants us to grow in godliness. He's listing out these attributes, and one of the key things here is he's advising that Timothy do so in the congregation, in the, in the midst of other believers who are mature. And you might have heard the, the old adage someone, that many have said, if you tell me who your friends are, I'll tell you who you are, or you know, who you surround yourself with, those are the kind of people you're going to end up looking like. I think that's what Paul is trying to exhort Timothy with here, saying that if you're going to stand up against false teaching, you should be growing and you should do so with mature believers. They're going to increase your faith too. And then, in verse 23, Paul's going to urge Timothy to avoid these foolish, ignorant controversies because they breed quarrels. Um, so, one thing that this does not mean is it does not mean that we avoid controversy. If, if you're familiar with, with the New Testament and the Apostle Paul, you know that he is not someone who shies away from controversy. He has called people out before. He's engaged in some real arguments and discussions. So Paul is not necessarily against tough, hard conversations that need to happen. Instead, Paul is probably trying to draw a distinction here, saying that there is a difference between critical theological discussions that are going to build people up, you know, talking about sin that's taking place and need to be addressed, versus things that are irrelevant, in things that probably can't be solved, questions we're clearly never going to have an answer for, and just wasting our time on those things. So Paul's trying to draw that line and say, guys, we need to focus on what is most important because we have limited time. And we should exhibit this wisdom as well and pray that God would help us figure that out. Um, so I think that a lot of this probably could have tied in and, and, and helped me in my discussions with Frank. 
Um, Frank wanted to discuss, like I mentioned, spiritual topics, but he really didn't want to talk about anything that was like a, a heavy, heavy-hitting item, something that really challenged people to grow in Christ. I think probably in Frank's soul, he, he was really wrestling with the gospel and what Christianity meant, and it was probably just easier to talk about these tangents and these, these sideshow items. Um, but instead, I know that I wasted time because I didn't address the key elements that I could have been talking to Frank about. And um, I think Paul is also challenging us to not waste time because ultimately we, we know we have a limited amount of time on this earth. We have a limited number of conversations that we're going to have with people. We don't know when that time is going to be up. We don't know when our last conversation with someone is going to be. And it's really easy to want to check out and just do what's easy and just kind of say, okay, yeah, thank you, and, and just let them say their piece and then move on rather than asking hard questions and engaging with the truth and the gospel. But I think that's what Paul is asking us to do here. He's asking Timothy to avoid these things that don't matter to make room for the things that do matter because we don't have an infinite amount of time with people. And then as we move in to verses 24 through 26, the final section, we ask the question, how should the Lord's servant deal with his opponents? So let's read verses 24 through 26. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil having been held captive by him to do his will. So first off, Paul starts us off by addressing Timothy as the Lord's servant. So this is probably a reference to the formal position of leadership that Timothy held, that he was probably in some sort of pastoral role. So as we read this, when Paul's going to charge Timothy with some of these things, he's doing so to Timothy the pastor, and so that may not, that wouldn't apply to, to many of us, in Timothy's role but even so, in the New Testament, when many of these qualifications or, or requirements of a pastor, elder role are mentioned, the Bible says these are still things that we should yearn to be, that this is a good thing to aspire to be. So we may not necessarily be in Timothy's shoes exactly, but there's still a lot we can learn from this and a lot we can glean from it. So these are five qualifications that Paul's going to start off with here, that the Lord's servant not be quarrelsome, this obviously flows out of the previous verse about the quarrels that he wants them to avoid. The Lord's servant needs to be kind to everyone, able to teach, patient when wronged, and correcting opponents with gentleness. And this is obviously not an exhaustive list of what Paul is saying a pastor should be. It's very much tailored for this discussion for what Timothy's dealing with in his church with these specific people. Um, so let's talk about these five points. The first one, someone who is not quarrelsome, is someone who is not given to escalating arguments and discussions. This is, this is not someone who attends their child's basketball game, and when the referee makes a questionable call, they're up in arms, they're yelling at the ref, and someone tells them to sit down, and then they start yelling at that person too, and then all of a sudden they've made this big scene that's supposed to be about their kid's basketball game, but they've made it about themselves. That is someone who is demonstrating that they want to engage in quarrels. There's someone who escalates situations. And Paul's trying to scale Timothy back and saying, you need to be someone who de-escalates situations. If we're going to have real discussions with people who are spreading false teaching and try to actually 
teach them about the gospel, we can't be people who escalate things. We can't be people who get offended and want to raise the temperature and raise the volume. And then secondly, kind to everyone. So this is someone who just naturally displays kindness consistently. And usually when someone does this, their reputation precedes them. One of the first things you think of when you think of this person might be, oh, if I need something, I know so-and-so is going to do so if they can. I need, I need help moving. Or, you know, my family was sick and they brought me a meal even though they were really, really busy at work. Or someone who just looks you in the eye and patiently listens to you when, when they ask you, how are you doing? And you want to share something with them and they really care. Um, and if we're going to engage with people and we want to show them the love of Christ, showing them true, genuine kindness is an enormous tool in showing them God's love. To show that we truly care about these people really opens doors and opens hearts to these kind of conversations. And the third one, able to teach. Someone who is clearly skilled to teach. So maybe, uh, you know, in Scripture we see a number of spiritual gifts. Some people will get a spiritual gift of teaching. Some may not. Um, In this case, as Paul was charging Timothy as a pastor, he should be able to teach. That was something very specific to to Timothy's role. But I think we all need to be able to be really grounded in our faith so that we all recognize false teaching. And maybe we don't have the formal gift of teaching ourselves, but if someone is spreading lies about the gospel, someone is saying things that are not true about God, then we should do our best to be well-versed in theology, to be able to understand it and recognize it when we hear it so that we can respond with truth. And then fourth one, someone who is patient when wronged. Um, this is a big one because <clears throat> as, as Christians, we read in the New Testament that those who want to live for the Lord will at some point exhibit persecution. Jesus said the servant is not greater than his master, and our master, Jesus, faced a lot of persecution, was eventually killed. Um, so, if we live for Jesus and we take time to engage with people about the gospel, at some point or another, we are going to be wronged. Someone is going to respond to us with hostility. Someone's going to say something about us that might not be true. And the natural impulse that all of us are going to have is something inside of us is going to want to lash out and say, hey, you can't do that. And it's, you're going to want to, I know with myself, even respond in anger, even respond and try to lash out and hurt that person with your words, maybe. And this is hardwired inside of all of us. We all have a tendency where if we let it go, we can respond this way. And Paul is urging Timothy ahead of time. He's saying, Timothy, watch out. You're going to suffer wrongs. You're going to encounter people who are hostile to you. You have to go in ahead of time knowing that you need to react with patience. That when these people respond to you this way, you need to already be ready in your mind to take a deep breath count to 10, do whatever, and let the Holy Spirit inform you on if this is a good idea or not. And then lastly of these five things, Paul says that the Lord's servant should correct his opponents with gentleness. So the Lord's servant is not simply here to defeat his opponents. This is not some debate where we're keeping score and you can just embarrass the other person and prove that they're wrong and throw them out of here. God and Paul through this epistle have a bigger view of this discussion than that that they want to win these false teachers, God's opponents, into the church, into God's love. So that's why we need to respond with gentleness. 
You see, we were all God's opponents at one time or another, but praise the Lord for his gentle corrections towards all of us. And then Paul says that God may grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. So a lot, a lot to say about that. First off, repentance ultimately comes from God, is what Paul is saying here. God might grant them repentance. And also, that's pretty, pretty interesting that Paul says he may grant them repentance. Repentance is not something that we are necessarily guaranteed. It is something that God gives us the opportunity to do. And based on what Paul says, that he may grant them repentance, he may not. So we should not presume that God is always going to be there offering us opportunities to repent of our sins. Maybe that means coming to Christ for the first time. Maybe God is convicting us of sin in our life. But through the Holy Spirit, he wants to convict us. And he wants us to repent and turn away from our sin and agree with him about it. But that opportunity may not always be there. And we should never be so arrogant to presume that we can put this off until tomorrow, that we can do this at a more convenient date. That when God is confronting us with what is true and what we need to turn away from, we should treat it very seriously and treat it with urgency. Um, but also, it's pretty incredible because even though it is God that is granting this repentance, we clearly have a role in this because Paul is charging Timothy to respond to his opponents with gentleness, that this gentle response might give a better opportunity for this, uh, this repentance to arise. And it makes sense. If, if you are in error and one person responds to you gently to try to move you towards the truth versus another person condemns you harshly and calls you an idiot and just wants to throw you out of here, which, which person are you more likely to respond well to? Which person are you more likely to listen to? You're more likely to listen to the person who's doing so with gentleness and showing you care. And I think it's incredible that even though it is ultimately the Holy Spirit that's going to work in people, that God is calling us to have a role in winning people to these opportunities by showing them love and gentleness. So it says, then those who come to repentance and to knowledge of the truth can come to their senses and they will escape the snare of the devil. Um, so that's a, pretty serious, that's a pretty serious verse there. And we've been talking about separating from false teaching, and I mentioned earlier that we may not necessarily separate from the false teachers, and this is part of that, that God wants to allow these people to escape the snare that they are in. The people spreading false teaching are ultimately not our true enemy. The true enemy is the devil. And this is hardly the only association in Scripture between the devil and lies. You can see it from beginning to end. It is one of his main tools. And the people who spread those lies are people who have been ensnared. The word snare has this idea of like, a, like an animal that's caught in a hunter's trap. They fall in unaware. The animal does not want to fall into the snare. And the people spreading these false teachings, if they really understood where they were coming from, they would want to turn away from it too, but they have been snared by it. And while it's really easy to want to respond to such people harshly, they are ultimately not our enemies, and God is calling us to love them and win them back to him. So we see this escape is dependent on repentance and a knowledge of the truth, which is why it is so important that we correct people with gentleness. And I also want to read a quote from Matthew Henry's commentary on, on this section. Matthew Henry said, When sinners repent, those who were before led captive by the devil at his will come to be led into the glorious liberty of the children of God. 
and they have their will, their wills melted into the will of the Lord Jesus. May the good Lord recover us all out of the snare. And then we read it ending in verse 26. It says, And they may come to their senses and have escaped the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Um, I just want to address, there's a little confusion um, if, in some commentaries. There's two pronouns there. Having been held captive by him to do his will. What, what does that mean? Um, so when it says held captive by him, it is clearly referring to the devil. These people were held captive by the devil. But now that they are free, the question is, should, does the verse read, these people were held captive by the devil to do the devil's will? Or these people that have been freed, they were held captive by the devil, and now they are free to do God's will? I don't know for sure. A lot of disagreement, a lot of smart people, much smarter than me, having different opinions. I think probably it's the second one, that these people were held captive by the devil, and they're now free to do God's will. I think that's more in keeping with the passage with the tone that Paul is trying to set to win these people out of the snare and that they will come to God through repentance and the knowledge of the truth. But either way, it doesn't, it doesn't drastically change the overall meaning of the passage, that ultimately God wants us to win people with love and the truth. So to conclude, Paul has said that we should cleanse ourselves from false teaching to be used in God's work. We should disassociate from false teachings and grow with mature believers and we must gently correct these false teachers as God may call them to himself, leading to their freedom. Like I mentioned, Frank was willing to wrestle with nuanced questions, but none of them directly involved the gospel. He needed someone to just gently and lovingly ask him how his soul was. And the truth is that we all need someone to challenge us like that, to talk about the fact that we all have a problem with sin, and therefore, because of our sin, there is an issue with our relationship with God that is broken. It's a problem that we cannot fix ourselves. But praise God that he came down as Jesus and he died on the cross to pay for our sins, that he lived a sinless life to earn us righteousness and do things we could never do for ourselves. And on the third day, he rose from the dead. And Jesus did this to accomplish our freedom and to give us hope. And we have this glorious hope, this glorious gospel that we can share with people, a loving truth. And this is what I could have talked to Frank about. And hopefully the next time I'm able to meet someone like Frank, the Holy Spirit will help lead me to bring the truth to bear with gentleness. So then, let's, uh, let's ask ourselves some questions. Do we have Franks in our lives? Do we know anyone like Frank? Well, if you don't or you haven't, there's a good chance at some point you will. It's going to look different for everyone, but there are people out there who are wrestling with things in their soul, but they don't really want to talk about the hard subjects. And if we get to know people and we listen, we can probably pick up on these things and understand that there are hard questions that we can ask and we can show these people we care about them. So we have that investment so they'll, they'll be willing to listen to the hard questions to know that we truly care about them even when we're saying these things. Are we able to respond to these people with gentleness, kindness, and patience? Um, and on the other hand, are we like Frank? Are we the kind of people that are distracting from the truth with needless conversations that are not important? Are we the kind of people who don't want to engage with the gospel? Maybe we're the kind of people who, in our own soul, we may not believe the gospel ourselves, and we don't really want to talk about that. That feels uncomfortable. If yes, 
then may God yet grant us repentance and the knowledge of the truth. I'm going to close in prayer, and then Michael's going to come back up. Heavenly Father, thank you for the truth. Thank you that we have a hope in this world and that it is Jesus. And thank you that you are going to use us in your glorious redemptive plan to win people to yourself, that you use the church. It is a wonderful privilege, and I pray that you will continue to give us grace as we all grow in God.